Welcome back to Nightmare Fuel. She tried pulling herself back, but however hard she tried, however hard she pushed, she could not stop her feet dragging her towards the open window. She dug her heels into the wooden floor, feeling splinters coming off it as her feet dragged her onward. Her hands caught the windowsill and the wind blew in her face, causing her hair to whip around. Her eyes widened with helplessness and terror, taking in the navy blue sky with its sad gray moon and uneven sprinkling of stars. She couldn't move her head, but she turned her pleading eyes to him as he stood beside her. Please, the word caught in her throat, her voice choked with fear. He looked back intently into her eyes, that smile fixed on his lips as he tied the thick rope around the window ledge. It all started three weeks ago. She had woken up to a sudden tapping at her window. Ignoring it, thinking it was the wind playing tricks, she went back to sleep. The light tapping at the window became deliberate knocking the next night. She sat shivering with fright in her bed, unable to move until the knocking ceased. However, the next morning, she was sure that she had been imagining things. Her room was on the third floor and with no trees or drain pipes outside to provide access to any unwelcome intruders. It wasn't knocking anyway, she convinced herself. It must have been one of the many mysterious sounds the night weaves into its lullaby. Two days passed. As she was sculpting downstairs in her studio, she heard the knock again. For a second, she froze with fright. Then she turned. Outside the window, hanging upside down, was a little boy. Only his head was visible through the glass, his face extremely pale, his hair dark, long, and dirty. He could have been a street urchin had it not been for his eyes. The eyes weren't human. They were round and slanted, with impossibly large irises. He gave her a mischievous smile and tapped at the window again, still upside down. Please, lady, he said, won't you let me in? She gasped and stumbled backwards, knocking her incomplete sculpture to the ground, throwing flecks of clay everywhere. For the child spoke in the voice of a man, a husky, sadistic tone. He started visiting her more and more, often knocking at the doors and windows. No, she thought, don't let him in. Whatever you do, don't let him in. She would see him peeking from her windows whenever she woke up, until she started keeping the curtains drawn at all times, and the windows locked. She ignored the knocking that continued, followed by his voice. Please, lady, won't you let me in? She started getting paranoid. It was with great inner turmoil that she left the house for work every day. For the most part, things appeared normal. Until that particular day. That day, she was already feeling slightly sick due to a lack of sleep. Her coworker had suggested that she talk to someone, a therapist or a priest, maybe. Yes, she thought, I will today. Suddenly, someone knocked at her car window. She gasped, her pupils dilated in horror. It was a cop. She had parked in front of a no parking sign. Swearing, she reared out, parked again, and rushed out to go to work. The cafe she worked at was a small glass-walled haven for all kinds of people. 
readers, lovers, and businessmen who wanted a cup of tea or coffee before they bustled back to their offices. It was an hour before she would get off. She was serving a table by the huge glass wall when a whisper reached her ears. Hey, lady, it said. Abruptly, she looked up out of the window, and there he stood, right in the middle of the road, with his black, slanting eyes and wicked smile. Without thinking, she rushed out to the sidewalk, and he was still there, right in the middle of the busy road, with the traffic whizzing past him. I said, please, didn't I? The boy whispered. I am a good boy, lady, came the man's voice from the little boy's throat. I said, please. He stood 12 feet away, and still his voice sounded in her ears above the noise of the traffic, as clearly as if he was inside her own head. And then a bus sped over him, just like that, passed right over the spot where he was standing. She screamed and ran right into the traffic where he had been, but nothing was there. She went down on her knees on the hard gray road. A few passers-by stopped to try and calm her as she sobbed. It took her a while to get back to her senses. She got into her car and sped off towards home as fast as she could. She rushed straight upstairs, right into her bathroom, and splashed herself with cold water. She looked at her face in the mirror, skull-like and gaunt now. What have you done to yourself? she asked. You're going insane, she thought. Don't let this happen. Don't lose your mind. She dried her face and turned into the bedroom. She was just inside the room when she stopped in her tracks. There he was, sitting at the window ledge, his short, skinny legs dangling inside. You left the window open, the husky voice purred. And then he walked to her side, took her hand in his tiny cold one, and started pulling her towards the window with surprising strength. Though she struggled, she couldn't fight him off. She watched him tying the rope to the ledge at one end and the other into a noose. Please, she managed to croak out. I said please too, the sadistic voice crooned as he lovingly placed the noose around her neck. She felt her feet climb the window ledge and then she was standing on it. I am a good boy, the voice whispered in her ear. She felt his cold breath and putrid smell, the smell of death. They would find a note in her room in her own handwriting explaining how she was committing suicide because she was sick of life. She felt the hard ledge under feet, the moonlight on her face, and the wind in her hair. The last things she would ever feel. A shadow fell from the third floor window of the house that night, and a voice snickered. I'm a good boy, lady. In 1984, there lived an old widowed lady by herself in a two-story house who was completely immobile and bound to her wheelchair. Ever since the mysterious death of her husband, she required the aid of a carer who would visit her daily to help her with everyday tasks. What made it even more difficult was the fact that the two floors of the house were only connected by an old staircase inside. When the old lady needed to move between the two, the carer would have to carry her frail body, like an infant, up and down the stairs. One day, the police received a call from the widow. There had been a murder. Since police units were scarce at the time, and the murderer had already fled the scene, 
only one detective was sent out to conduct the initial crime scene report. He arrived to see the carer's body splayed out on the floor, with her vocal cords ripped out in a pool of blood on the first level of the house. With the old lady atop the staircase in her wheelchair watching him, still and silently, seemingly in shock. He could immediately rule her out as a suspect due to her inability to move up and down the stairs, and because she was trapped up there at the time the murder took place. It was similar to the death of her husband many years ago, who had suffocated in his sleep on the couch downstairs. The detective put on his gloves, took photos, swabbed for evidence, and covered the body until the coroner arrived later. All routine business. He scoped the house downstairs for any clues, then asked the old lady if he could look upstairs. She insisted that she was upstairs the whole time and no one apart from her had been up there that day. But regardless of this, the detective ascended the staircase to which she hesitantly moved aside. Beyond the staircase, there was a narrow corridor with three closed doors along it. He checked behind each of the doors. The empty bedroom, nothing. The bathroom, nothing. He became anxious as he slowly made his way to the final bedroom, where the old lady slept. He opened it and everything looked normal. A bed, a wardrobe, and a bedside table with a lamp. He checked every wall of the room in horror, as it was not what he discovered, but it was what he didn't discover that made him stop dead in his tracks and slowly reach for his gun in its holster. It was a detail so minor that they had completely overlooked it on the last investigation of the husband's death. There was no phone upstairs. He suddenly heard a noise as he withdrew his gun and rushed out of the room, only to find an empty wheelchair atop the stairs. I must have been six or seven when I lived in Lebanon. The country was ravaged by war at the time, and murders were common and frequent. I remember during a particularly vicious era when the bombings rarely stopped. I would stay at home sitting in front of my television watching a very, very strange show. It was a kid's show that lasted about 30 minutes and contained strange and sinister images. To this day, I believe it was a thinly veiled attempt on the part of the media to use scare tactics to keep kids in place, because the moral of every episode revolved around very uptight ideologies. Stuff like, bad kids stay up late, bad kids have their hands under the covers when they sleep, and bad kids steal food from the fridge at night. It was very weird, and in Arabic to top it off. I didn't understand much of it, but for the most part, the images were very graphic and comprehensive. The thing that stuck with me the most, however, was the closing scene. It remained much the same in every episode. The camera would zoom in on an old rusted closed door. As it got closer to the door, strange and sometimes even agonizing screams would become more audible. It was extremely frightening, especially for children's programming. Then a text would appear on the screen in Arabic reading. That's where bad kids go. Eventually, both the image and the sound would fade out, and that would be the end of the episode. About 15 or 16 years later, I became a journalist photographer. That show had been in my mind all my life, 
popping up in my thoughts sporadically. Eventually, I had enough and decided to do some research. I finally managed to uncover the location of the studio where much of that channel's programming had been recorded. Upon further research and eventually traveling on site, I found out it was now desolate and had been abandoned after the big war ended. I entered the building with my camera. It was burnt out from the inside. Either a fire had broken out or someone had wanted to incinerate all of the wooden furniture. After a few hours of cautiously making my way into the studio and snapping pictures, I found an isolated out-of-the-way room. After having to break through a few old locks and managing to break the heavy door open, I remained frozen in the doorway for several long minutes. Traces of blood, feces, and tiny bone fragments lay scattered across the floor. It was a small room and an extremely morbid scene. What truly frightened me, though, what made me turn away and never want to come back, was the bolted, caged microphone hanging from the roof in the middle of the room. It's a small memory, a fragment almost entirely hidden in your hazy recollection of past years, of oddly dreamlike days where the imagination ran wild and free, blurring the lines of the so-called reality that you now have as an adult, and your innocence and carefree youth kept you, for the most part, very happy. You were young, in first grade. Late at night, you stumbled from the bathroom and, bleary-eyed, walked through the familiar dark of your room that still scared you quite often. You were too tired to be afraid, so you didn't rush as you normally did into the sheets. You walked past the slightly dirty window with a view of a dimly lit street below, and you thought you saw somebody in what was maybe a yellow raincoat walking up the street. This began to happen often. You would wake up with the urge to look out the window, and sometimes you would see him. He indeed wore a yellow jacket, even on the driest of nights. You'd see the strange man walking up the street in the deadest hour of the night, and even in your young age, you knew that was weird. You'd watch him for a few seconds, and every time he stopped, you looked around, then turned towards your house, and you'd quickly duck under the covers and not come out until morning. Eventually, though, mom put up blinds and you stopped looking for the weird man. Days, weeks, months passed. Years went by, rolling like an endless and unstoppable tide. School, friends, hobbies, girls, they all pushed the strange set of memories from your conscious mind. One night, in your senior year of college, you were studying late at the library. When you finally packed it in, you headed out and started to walk home to your apartment, a few blocks down, since gas is expensive. On a drearily lit street, you got the creepy feeling that someone was watching you. A few times you turned around, but nobody was behind you. Then you felt like it was coming from higher up, and you looked at a slightly dirty window in a strangely familiar house, but there was nobody. You shrugged it off, and as a loud crack of thunder peeled overhead, you gladly threw on your yellow raincoat and continued up the silent street. <laughs> 